Hello and welcome to the MISEM podcast in which we talk to MISEM members and other researchers about their research into the medieval world of Central Europe. I'm Karen Culver and today it is my pleasure to be meeting Daniela Rivikova to talk about her book Spectrum Mortis, The Image of Death in Late Medieval Bohemian Painting, published by Lexington Books in 2020. Daniela did her undergraduate, master's and doctoral studies at the Department of the Theory and History of Art at Palatsky University in Olomouc, Czech Republic. Since 2004, she's been the assistant professor and now associate professor docent at the Department of History of Art and Cultural Heritage, University of Ostrava, where she was head of department from 2013 to 2018. In addition to her teaching roles, since 2018, Daniela has been the Vice Dean for International Affairs and Public Relations at the Faculty of Art, University of Ostrava, and a Fellow of the Centre for Medieval Studies at Charles University in Prague. Her research covers late medieval visual culture in Central Europe, Christian iconography, and medieval devotion and art, when Daniela is not teaching or researching medieval art and visual culture, she lives with her partner, Three Cats, collection of skulls, and loves anything medieval and macabre. Daniela, welcome to the MISEM podcast. Karen, thank you for a nice introduction. And first of all, thank you for the invitation. It's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to be here today with you and to have interview about my book and perhaps to introduce a little bit of the medieval topics uh, regarding the death and dying in late Middle Ages to the wider public. So thank you very much for the invitation. <laughs> well, I'm glad you could join us. You mentioned your book and that's where I'd like to start. It is a fascinating book and I've read it very carefully and with great pleasure. The Spectrum Mortis, the image of death in late medieval Bohemian painting. It's incredibly well researched. You obviously devoted an enormous amount of time and energy to it. But why did you select such a morbid subject as the images of death? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. Um, first of all, I don't think that the topic dealing with death and dying is morbid. I think it's very natural part of our lives. Death and dying, it's an issue that it's central to, to the entire humanity. All people know that one day they are going to die. And it doesn't matter if they live in 14 or 21st century, the anxiety of death and to be dead one day, the idea of it, it's, it's like our common issue. And people in Middle Ages, I believe, differently from people today, were concerned about what is going to happen after they die and what it looks like, what death itself looks like. What concerns me and what was fascinating for me was to answer these questions and to see how they handle them in visual terms, in in a visual culture and how the visual culture communicated with religious practice and the written sources. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, death will happen to everyone. I quote from your book here, in the 14th and 15th century, 
you experienced an increased and intensely experienced fear of death. Why did this happen and why at this time? And you've already mentioned the attitude towards death, but was it the physical actuality of dying or the afterlife that was feared? Uh, of course, both. But I would like to stress that the reality of death and experience of death and dying in Middle Ages was very different from us. As Philip Arias, the famous uh, French historian, noticed, we pushed out the death from our lives. We don't like and we don't feel comfortable thinking about death and dying. And the, one of the problems of our society is that we tend to expel dying people in hospitals. It's not common today that members of your family would be dying at home with you. Yeah. And uh, for this reason that we are just forgetting that uh, we don't want to think about death. It's, it's, it's not comfortable. You are not waking up with the idea that you are going to die or you may, you may die. But in medieval times, people would do that intentionally and they would call it meditatio mortis, you know, the meditation of, of death. And when they would go to church, loads of topics would be targeting ars moriendi, the art of dying well. And that was very important because they believed that the good death, mors bona, is a condition for salvation of their soul. So their concern about death was to die well, to be saved and get to heaven. And you ask about the increasing anxiety or fear of death during the 14th and 15th century. The end of 14th, the beginning of 15th century, it was a period of great social, economic, political, religious changes in Europe. And these changes and the transformation, they always create a fear, increasing fear in a society among people. And it's very well reflected by the late medieval art. The topics dealing with death, these macabre topics, they just spread, increased in quantity and in various iconographic topics and idioms. And uh, they are getting more aggressive. You can see the skeletons everywhere. And they are not like passive. They are very active. You know, they are imitating living people. They are fighting with them. They are talking to them. So the skeletons, they, they represent death. Who is, as it was common in medieval mentality, part of the world of living. And that's very important to understand. They didn't push out the death. They understood that the death is a part of their life and a member of the, of the world of living. So I would say there were great social changes during the late Middle Ages. In Central Europe particular, or in, in Bohemia particular, it was also the Hussite War, the, the Reformation. Also, one of the starting points in the mid-14th century is, was the epidemics of so-called Black Death, the epidemics of plague, where, according to the newest research, over 70 million people died in Europe. That's actually an enormous number of dead people, and the horror these people experienced, I believe it's very hard for us to imagine it actually imprinted itself into the mentality and the cultural code of the late Middle Ages. And voila, here we go with the macabre topics, because they also reflect this. So it's, uh, 
It wasn't very happy period, I would imagine. I love Middle Ages, but I'm not sure if I would like to experience this. <laughs> it was definitely a period experiencing great changes going towards the early modern ages, towards Renaissance, etc. But it was really difficult period. You mentioned the aim was to have a good death. What in the medieval period constituted a good death? And why was it important? And did that facets of a good death change over time? Well, the good death, the idea of morsbona, meant a death which is planned, prepared, and its result of a preparation and ritual. And that meant that is a death which you wish to, you welcome death. It's like uh, Thomas Stietny, the famous Czech theologian, he said that good Christian is not afraid of death. He's looking for it. And that should be, for the late medieval theologians, the aim of all Christians. Why? Because when the death is well prepared, that means you say goodbye to your family, you had to re-establish good relationship with everybody, even with your enemies. You had to produce a testament, like to produce justice, the social justice. You need to invite a priest. The priest would perf perform a ritual of dying, yeah, including Eucharist sacrament, etc. And then you would lie down in your dying bed with the burning candle looking at the crucified Christ and die. And that would be the ideal scenario that everybody wished for, while other people would be praying for you, etc., etc. And such a well-performed, prepared death, including prayers, you know, receiving sacraments, etc., would regard it as a good um, performance or good uh, ritual to give you the hope for the eternal life. Yeah, the very important part of dying well was uh, uh, your communication with priest, why you would have to tell them all your deadly sins. The deadly sins are very important in Middle Ages because deadly sins means that this is sin which is leading to death, not to physical death, but to eternal death. In Middle Ages, people were understand death as a dual phenomenon, physical death and spiritual death, the spiritual or eternal death that means you would go to hell forever. Eternal damnation. That's the real death of your soul. The body has to die. Everybody has to die. The body is not a problem. The problem is your soul. What happened with your soul? So dying well, the art of dying well, meant that your soul needs to be living, needs to be able to get to heaven one day through the last judgment, etc. But you need to keep the hope. Or another type of that was mors improvisa. That meant sudden death. That's why people were afraid of plague so much, because people would be dying on the street suddenly. You know, from the chronicles, you can read that people would be walking on the street and over the sun they would just drop dead. Well, that was the worst possible death for medieval man. You know why? Because you were not able to perform all the rituals and you would probably die with some kind of sins that jeopardize your salvation. But you cannot know. That's even the worst scenario. 
while you've been speaking, I've been wondering two things. First, did a good death involve making donations to the church? And second, what happened if someone went to war and had a violent, unexpected death? Uh, yeah, donations to church, definitely. Uh, people, good Christians, again, would try to do them during their lives, you know, continually, because according to the Ars Moriendi, you should be prepared for death any minute, any time during your life. Like, because the common practice in the late Middle Ages was like people were avoiding thinking about death, of course, like people today. But when they became ill or old and feeling that the death is getting close, that they started to do something, donation to church, good deeds, you know, if you were rich, found a monastery, that was a typical, <laughs> you know, VIP sort of activity when you were fearing death. This wasn't the scenario church actually wanted. They wanted people to prepare for their death continually. You know, this meditatio mortis or memento mori, remember death. That was a very important motto. Like you should be thinking about death all the time in order to be able to prepare yourself well. For soldiers, for people who were in danger to die through this sudden death in, in war, etc., there were precautions before the battle. So there would be holy mass where all the soldiers would attend to uh, receive the Eucharist sacrament and actually would do the best they could to prepare themselves for the potential death. And also there was this kind of just war. They believed that they are actually fighting for, for God. Yeah, like this Miles Christi, the, the God's night. So God will look at them positive you know, view and save them because they are fighting for the right thing. You know, they always think that, right? You know, and the crusaders as well as both sides, you know, thinking that the God loves them, you know. Right. Your book talks mostly about the images of death. And although death was more visible, it's still quite an abstract concept. So how in the late medieval period, how was death portrayed? First of all, the iconography of death during Middle Ages is going through a certain transformation and it's a complicated issue I don't want to open here. So the most common image of death you can obtain and one of the most attractive allegorical visualization of death, like for example, triumph of death, where you can see a death and form of skeleton uh, sitting on a leaping horse. And the horse is the fastest animal, of course, in, in Middle Ages. So that means the death is coming fast and suddenly and unexpectedly. So it, it's actually an image that is actually warning against sudden death. And also to show that death is unstoppable. You cannot fight death, not even if you are a strong knight. It's also issued and the, the, the skeleton meets a knight, skeleton meets the king, skeleton meets the emperor, and she always wins. The other very attractive and well-known image is the dance of death. And it shows the entire society and its hierarchy, Pope, Emperor, King, Queen, etc., etc., going back to the beggar and, and child, that death 
is taking anybody, everyone. And you cannot talk to her, you cannot, you know, shut her up, like, don't take me. And there's this dialogue. To dance with death, we believe that it actually reflected experience of dying. You are not dead yet, but you already know how to dance with death. That means you were, for example, seriously ill and you survived. That means you danced with death. Yeah. And the social strata, it's represented by dance of death. Uh, that's also uh, showing the stratification of the society and the very simple motto, which was very attractive, that death is the same for everybody. The death is often saying to emperor, you know, you are king now, but in grave, you will be king of worms. Or <laughs> the worms will be eating you just like anybody else, you know. And death, when, it, when she talks, because dance of death is actually dialogue between living and dead. That's very interesting as well, because we often are quite confused in a late medieval iconography of death. If we are actually, the death, the skeleton represents the death itself or, or dead people who are just speaking for the death or the death is speaking through the skeleton, through the already dead people who experience death already. Do, do you understand? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's not easy. It looks like easy iconography, but interpreted is sometimes quite difficult. And then, of course, you would have as a third big major motive, I would stress the legend of three living and three dead, which is a beautiful 13th century legend, like three rich boys, three kings, are just, you know, enjoying their lives, going, riding horses, going to, to the woods, and they meet three skeletons, and the skeletons are telling them, why are you so frightened of us? Why are you so horrified? One day, you will be exactly what we are now, and we are exactly what you were. Yeah, so again, it's like this memoria. You are kings, you are very powerful people in this world, but you have to die anyway, so don't be proud do good things, be humble and just because one day your body will be rotting and, and smelly, etc. Sometimes the verses are, are very graphic and the art as well. You can see the rotting skeletons full of worms, you know, and, and frogs. And it can be, you know, this macabre iconography can be sometimes quite, well, not, not very pleasant. <laughs> but uh, it's graphic exactly for this reason, that we all have same physical bodies king as well as the beggar they have same physical body that will be rotting the difference between peasant and king is that the king's got also a political body that represents his his political power his his you know social status etc but not even that is safe from death you can die not only physically but also politically and spiritually. And that's a very important message, this legend. You were talking about the images of death. I know from your book that images of death were very frequently painted in churches where the general public could see them. Images of death were also in private and monastic chapels where a more educated literate audience could see them. And images were also made on manuscripts, which I would assume are targeting a literate audience. Given these different audiences, is there any difference in the way death was depicted 
or any difference in style of that depiction? No. <laughs> Surprisingly, perhaps. Um, when we speak about the iconography of death uh, regarding the audience, we have to address two different issues. One is the artistic style, and the second is the iconography. The artistic style, it really differs depending on the commissioner, depending on how much money you have, what kind of artistic preferences you have, a fashion, etc. while the iconography remains the same for the audiences because it addresses something people share, all people, all humanity, and that's a fear of death and the reality of death, the experience of death. We are all going to die and it doesn't matter if you are king or peasant, right? So perhaps surprisingly, the iconography really doesn't vary depending you know, on the audience. There may be slight uh, modifications in the details of the iconography depending on the audience or on the commissioner. The commissioner would typically ask about some kind of detail or feature that would address him personally. The type of crown, crest of arm, right? The wall painting as a medium of art would be typically addressing the community. You know, the church, you would have wall painting typically depicting some kind of Ars Moriendi or Memento Mori, usually connected with the last judgment image or seven deadly sins image. The macabre iconography would be usually not be depicted alone, but in some kind of devotional context. That's very important to, to, to educate a little bit the viewer, perhaps, or to remind you, you are going to die and you will be judged by Christ. So die well. Do not do naughty things. Do not sin. So, you know, it basically spoke with the same language to anybody, as I said, because the, the death is like a common issue for all of us, uniting our humanity. So if you've got all these images of death saying that in life we're all different, but in death we are all equal, did that ever prompt people to demand greater equality in life? That's an interesting question. Um, uh, well, no, I don't think so. You would have images like Dance of Death, where you would have representatives from the all social strata, beginning with Pope and Emperor, followed by King, Queen, uh, uh, Cardinal, etc., ending up with a cook, peasant, child, simple woman, typically. And they, they all dance together with death. That means the equality in death, but reflecting the social stratification which was given by God, the Ordo Dei, God's order. That what people believe was make the, the social stratification and this, everybody had its specific place within the society, including the gender roles. Women have very specified roles and men performing within the society. Yeah, so 
No, they, they, uh, people were aware of the inequality in the society, of course. But they would regard it as how it's done, you know, how it's given us uh, by God. But it doesn't mean that they will not try to, to stand up against it. Very often they did. Um, this was important for the medieval mind that we see. How was burial performed? And where were the burial places located within a community? Well, a typical late medieval cemetery or burial area would be placed within the city, within the city walls by the parish church. And if, of course, it would have limited space. So in various situations like epidemics or war, that would increase the number of dying people could really create a crisis. You know, where to move the dead bodies, you know? <laughs> you imagine it's, it was quite a, a tricky situation. Um, the burial practice in Middle Ages was actually very practical because the graves would be very shallow, typically 50 centimeters deep maximum. You would place the body not in the coffin, the coffin was used only for the transportation of the body, not for the burial like, like today. And uh, after the body decay into certain stage, it would be removed from the grave and placed in the special burial chapel and its part called osarium, the chamber where the bones would be storaged. Sometimes it would be mess. Sometimes there would be really nicely tidy organized. And it was these charnel houses, as we call them, were usually placed in the middle of the cemetery, also used for the liturgy, the office of the dead, for example. You know, because the burial liturgy would take two parts. One took part in the church. That would be the liturgy. The, the mass, etc., and then you would be having this other part of the of the she would take in the chamber house. Yeah, and all over Europe, the practices of burials would differ. For example, in France, you would have very deep graves where bodies would be storage on top of each other, which is you know the idea which we don't like very much either, and. They didn't care about the about the remains of the human body very much, to be honest. The soul was important. The body, after resurrection, will be reconstructed to you. So for us, their dealings with the human remains is a little bit strange. <laughs> and also, I would like to stress that the medieval cemetery was still regarded as a place within the living community. So you would usually find there not only the charnel house, but also a public house with prostitutes hanging around. People would be passing by the cemetery or passing through it. It would be like a normal communication, like a street in the town. And it's also very nicely reflected by the late medieval iconography, where the meeting between dead and living takes place in the cemetery significantly. This is the place where you can meet dead, where you can meet death and you can talk to her. There is also interesting phenomenon called revenants in Middle Ages, dead people, usually your relatives, returning back to you like zombies 
<laughs> For us, it's like a Hollywood horror movie, right? <laughs> telling you about their needs. Usually, they come from purgatory, telling you, oh, I still have like 14,000 years left in purgatory. Please pay more for the masses. So they shorten me the, the period I spend in purgatory. And various requests of this type. So for us, it's a bit horrendous or horrific idea, but it only shows that uh, in Middle Ages, the world of living and world of dead were not separate words, but they were penetrating each other and communicating with each other in a very, very natural way. In a way that we don't do today at all, which really leads me to my final question to raise things that you have already mentioned. The way we deal with death now. The medieval world feared, but they thought about death and they faced it. Where it seems today, we don't. If you're very wealthy, you could go through technological ways of trying to create an illusion of eternal life for yourself. Other people refuse to make a will or refuse to plan for their funeral. And I'm aware, particularly as I'm getting older, I'm aware people don't talk about someone having died. My great aunt Hilda passed. Never aunt Hilda died. Uh, death is offensive to our living souls now. How do you think this compares? And what can we learn from the the way the medieval people face death? Well, yeah, I think this is a very important question. Seriously, this is one of the fundamental ones, and I also try to address it in my book. We live in over-technology-centered society. We believe that technology can solve everything, even our natural anxiety of death. Well, it doesn't work this way. As uh, I mentioned before, and as Norbert Arias has written together with Philippe Arias, we expel death from our lives. As you say, it's almost offensive when you start to talk to people about death. They think you're a little bit crazy. You know, it's somehow it's being asocial to even speak, to even open the topic of death, even to ask people, for example, when you die, what kind of music you would like to play on your funeral, you know? <laughs> they get furious because they think you're being unpolite. And that's very, very unnatural. And uh, what we can learn from medieval society, it's the feeling of security that is given to you by the community. It would never, ever happen in the Middle Ages not in the normal circumstances, that a member of your family would die outside the family circle, alone somewhere in the hospital. Never. Dying was understood as a process. The Ars Moriendi texts are giving you 10 hours, the time you should meditate about death, you should be getting ready for the moment of death, it's very important. Typically in this Ars Moriendi text, you would have five inspirations and five temptations you should meditate on. And the last 11 hours, that's the hour of death. You would lie down, praying together with your family members, holding a candle and looking at the Christ and die. As Tomasz Tietny said, good Christian 
is ready to, to die any moment during his life. He's not even fearing death. He's looking forward to meet her, you know, because it's the death was understood only as a transition to another reality. It wasn't regarded as the end of everything. This is our problem. We believe death is some kind of termination of your existence. This is one thing. And another thing is the fear of dying, the pain, the depression. Yeah, so in Middle Ages, death was very well conducted. They had all these instruments that they may look a bit funny to us because how, okay, it's uh, 8 p.m. I'm going to die in 10 hours, you know, getting ready, guys, you know. <laughs> but we don't know exactly how it worked, basically, if you needed a priest to be there or not. And I believe it was some kind of ideal scenario that you should somehow try to approach at least a little bit. Even people who were alone, who wouldn't have any relatives, any family, wouldn't be left to die alone by the medieval society. They would be professionals, usually women, begins. They were experts on death and they would, they would pray with you. They would take care of your, of your body. They would take care of your soul. They would be there as priests, you know, caring for you while you were expecting death. So I believe this basic return to humanity, to the human community, to sharing experience together, that the charity, you know, the comfort, the care, that's something our society is missing very much. And I believe that the technologies are taking part of it. It's getting all very unpersonal, detached, and not emotional. Yeah. Because expressing emotions is something that our society doesn't tolerate especially with men. This is the sign of masculinity. Modern masculinity is not to cry on public. In Middle Ages, it was completely different. It was very, very common to show and to express your emotions publicly. So I believe we can learn a, a lot, a lot from this. Yeah. Also, we divided the world of living from the world of dead by very precise surgical cut well, during the Middle Ages they were just penetrated worlds. Hmm. That's interesting points and that's also an excellent way to conclude a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your research with us, your thoughts. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you Karen. Thank you very much for also for me, very intriguing interview. I hope uh, we didn't scare your audience. <laughs> didn't make them depressed or anything. No, anyway, thank you for the opportunity to, to share my uh, research with the public. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Today mm -hmm. I've been talking to Daniela Rivbikova about her research into the medieval and macabre world of Bohemia. My thanks to everyone for listening, and I hope you found this conversation as interesting and enjoyable as I did. Please do look out for the next MISA podcast in which MISA members talk about their recent or current research into medieval Central Europe. And if you have research that you or your colleagues are doing and you think other members would find interesting and you would like to talk about it, please do contact me through the MISA board or website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the Mesem podcast. 
Thank you and goodbye until the next time. Mm -hmm.